This is Claiming Your Voice with Jenny Scarrard. In this podcast, I feature guests with passionate stories of hope, inspiring others to claim their voice in a world where we can be bold together. Tonight, my guest is Tammy Van Buskirk. She is a domestic adoptee born in a hospital located in Beverly Hills, California. She was relinquished by her birth mother at age six months and adopted to a couple in Glenville, California. Tammy experienced the trauma of molestation as a young child and lived through years of abuse as a young adult. She is now in a healthy relationship and is here to share her story of how she has moved from surviving to thriving. Welcome, Tammy. Thank you for having me this evening. Go ahead and let's hear your story. If you want to start from the beginning of your adoption, what you have found out about that. I'm happy to share that. My birth mother put me up for adoption at the age of six months. That would have been in 1970, as I was born in 1969. Her lifestyle was just not conducive to being able to care for a child at that time. And the biological father denied that I was in existence um, or that I was his. So she decided in the long run that because she couldn't take care of me, wasn't able to get any help from anyone else that she would put me up for adoption. The story that she was told was that the family I would be going to would be a wealthy family and that I would be going to college and all of my needs would be met. Of course, she believed that and thought she was doing the best thing. It did turn out after I met her that a lot of other variables came into play, but I'll talk about that later. My adopted parents had a very blended family. My adopted father had two children from a previous marriage. Uh, My mom had a son from a previous marriage. And then um, I was adopted. And at the same time I was adopted, uh, my mother and father were given uh, the option to process my adoption quicker if they were willing to take on two more children that were siblings. They were much older than me, about 10 years older than me. My parents agreed to do that so that they could expedite the process. The other brother and sister, the adopted other two that were adopted with me, left the family fairly quickly. As I said, they were older. And so they still remembered their other family. Their their grandparents were still alive and in the picture. And so they frequently would run away and go to that place when things would get bad where we lived. Mom and dad divorced when I was about two and a half years old. My mother had known about his infidelity for a while, and that was one of the reasons, a big one of the reasons that she chose to adopt, hoping that that would bring the family back together with a baby in the family. And it did not work out so well. That didn't, that didn't work out. They divorced when I was about two and a half. And I hadn't really been in the family very long at that point. I'd only been in the family maybe a little over a year, I, I believe. It's, it's kind of murky, the dates uh, when I was actually adopted, or was that the day that they started the process? Was it the day that they got me? In my baby book, my mom had actually written my time of birth and then wrote next to it in parenthesis the time we got her. So I, I, it took me a while to understand what that meant, but she was very clear about the fact that I was adopted. It wasn't in a hateful way. 
it was in her mind, it was her way of just helping me to be prepared in case those things might have uh, come up in conversation. And she didn't want me to be blindsided, but she had always told me that she picked me because she had always wanted a baby girl. And that when she saw my adorable face and the big blue eyes that she just had to have me, <laughs> uh, how much was that doggy in the window? I guess, I don't know how much, but all of that kind of went to the wayside when the divorce happened. Mom moved us, myself and her other son, my brother, back to her hometown or one of her hometowns where her family lived. That's where we stayed for most of the rest of my years growing up until I was about 25 or 26. My mom at that time, because my, because the dad did not provide at all for me, at all, uh, um, did not provide child support or, or really anything. So mom had to take on more than one job, was frequently gone overnight working an overnight shift someplace. So most of that time was spent for me staying with my grandparents, who also paid for an awful lot of other things for me through the years. The only bad part about that, or the really bad part about that, was that my grandfather was a molester. And he, unfortunately, I remember things from as far back. I remember I remember living with my mom and dad together and our family together in that first home. So I, I can remember as far back as, you know, in my early twos, some, you know, somewhere in there. And unfortunately, I can also remember when the molesting for me started. And that was probably about the age of three when we had moved to the, the family's hometown. And I started spending all that time with my grandparents. If it wasn't because of working, I would be there because we had to go to church the next day. And my mom didn't go to church because she worked all the time, but she wanted me to go to church. And so she made sure I stayed with my grandparents who were really safe. And um, so every weekend for sure, at least two nights and probably the next afternoon after church when my grandma would be napping, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of activity happening and I didn't realize it so much at the time. I mean, obviously, you know, it's bad, but you just think that that's how things are. And, um, you don't think about it. If someone says, don't tell, you know, I, I don't want, I don't want to get in trouble and I'll get in trouble. Those kinds of things. A lot of us have heard those things that went on for me for, at least until I was about 14. When I was 14, I had to spend the summer uh, every night anyway with uh, my grandma and grandpa because my grandmother had uh, broken her leg and she was a large woman and she had to be helped to do everything. And so I was there to clean her wounds, uh, to help rotate her in bed, to uh, give her her medicine, to clean her her bum when she had to use the, the bedpan. So that's what I did for a whole summer when I was 14. I mean, that was every night that summer. And I finally had gotten to a point with my grandfather where I was just so disgusted and so sick of just the sickness. And I just 
unleashed, not, you know, not terribly because I'm not disrespectful, but told him to just leave me alone. Stay away from me. Don't touch me ever again. And, and that finally stopped with him. But the thing is that also all of those years, my mother had had different boyfriends and had been married several times. And with those boyfriends came their friends and with all of my older brothers and sisters that were in and out of our home, there came their friends. And it was as though I had a, a sign around my neck that said, hey, go ahead and do what you want. I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody. Don't worry about that. I got you. Don't worry. I remember some very, some very awful things happening to me as, as a six-year-old someone sneaking through a window and doing horrible things and then that person sneaking down the hallway to surprise my family because they had snuck in and they all laughed and hollered because they didn't know that there was a six-year-old laying in bed hoping that she didn't have to tell her mom that she was pregnant and that's just not something a six-year-old or any child should ever worry about that's it's just not a thing but that's just kind of how it was and that's how things went for me my mom married uh, her longest longest term husband um, and she, he was a police officer and he was not well liked in the community or on the force and he was he proceeded to make my life a living absolute living hell you know just narcissistic games he was never physically abusive to me but he he was physically repelled by me. Uh, he would, if I began to play any of my music, my piano, if I played the piano or if I sang or which are, which were things that I excelled at, he would walk from the room. He just wanted nothing to do with anything about me. He would tell me I could call him dad when that would benefit him because we were going to visit his family. And so he wanted everything to look perfect. But then as soon as we got back, he'd find some reason to get mad at me and tell me never call him dad again. All I really wanted was just a dad. So I just, you know, I just struggled, but I wanted to get out. So I decided I was going to move away. And unfortunately, I found a man uh, who was even more broken than me. We got married. I was 17 and it was not the escape I was hoping for from my my life with my stepdad, it was, it became a very physical, a physically violent life and a very rough period for me. And it began when I was about five months pregnant. And then he began beating me for things that were made up. And I know there are also people out there who feel that. And that's a tough one. Um, hang on just a minute. Um, anyway, so I went, I went kind of by my mom's playbook, I guess, and um, decided that after a couple of years, um, and after my son had, was just a couple years old, that the marriage maybe could be saved if I had another baby. And so I did. And that was when things really took a turn for the worse. Uh, I ended up leaving him because I came to that moment again just like I had with my grandfather I'm done I'm done and we're not doing this anymore and I I had found out he had been 
uh, unfaithful. And I mean, I wanted away for, from him so bad that we lived above my mom's bar. And I mean, just in a little one room. And it was a really rough time for a long time. I myself remarried a couple of times after escaping that hell. They were not, they were not bad people. I will say the first one was technically still married to his first wife. And we didn't know, at least as far as I know, we didn't know. So that was kind of, um, that kind of ended that pretty quickly. Then I had, um, I had another long-term marriage. And during this time, that long-term marriage was with a serviceman and he, he was gone a lot. And by this time I had three children. We had had a daughter together in this, in my last marriage and he was gone a lot. And I realized after so many years of when he would come home, just shutting down and he would just act like he didn't, wasn't part of the family. We could not make that work at all. And so I decided it wasn't his fault and it wasn't my fault. We just were two different people. And so that was done. All of this time I had begun drinking and I began drinking very, very heavily. I had many, many thoughts during this time of suicide. I had a few attempts and I did these because I felt that I was adopted and I was supposed to be special. Now I was adopted and I was smart and I had all of these talents and I was so resentful that I had no help with any of these things. With any of these talents, they were just um, a party favor to my mom. They were just a play the piano for this restaurant, play, you know, get up and sing for strangers. Just, I was her party favor, but I never got anywhere. And I, I mean, I failed in school. I failed at everything. And it was because I felt so different. I never fit. And I, I'd always known I was adopted, but I was trying to believe the lie of you're adopted and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You are, you know, you are blood no matter what. And, you know, even though we're not, but there's that fantasy level that they play at and they, you know, I, I'm sorry. I keep. <laughs> it's okay, Tammy. And I think um, you know, when people listen to this and they hear your raw emotion, it speaks to us. And it tells us what the truths are of adoptees. And adoptees are oftentimes told, you know, you're special, you were picked and all of this. But what you just said about you had all of these talents, but there was no support. Nope, it, not we, at all. There are many other people where I've heard the same and, you know, I'm not taking anything away or adding to your story. What I'm saying is that you're not alone. And that's why I came here. <laughs> that's why I came to you. And that's why, because realizing that I'm not alone has been the biggest break in my mental health has been the biggest, um, the biggest boost because I've always felt isolated, 
you know, uh, nobody understood me because nobody else had, you know, the music in them, you know, nobody else had that and nobody else, I mean, they liked music, you know, but nobody else had it in their soul and, you know, nobody could help me with my home homework. I mean, I was, I, I, my mother, my mother had me tested because my mother had me tested um, <laughs> because I went to private school for, I'm sorry, public school for the first or for kindergarten and for first grade. And about halfway through the first grade, the teachers called my mom and, you know, to have a meeting and said that they simply could not keep up with me, that they did not have the right curriculum at my, you know, at the grade level I was attending that I was way beyond that and that they couldn't give me enough to work with to keep me busy or to to get me any you know more education without you know alienating me too much from other people my age so I always joked and said that I was kicked out of school for being too smart but I mean and, and I don't know that I was thinking about that a few days ago and maybe that's just something my mom said to boost my ego. I don't know, but, but I'm pretty smart. <laughs> and then private school, the school was so tiny, was maybe 30 kids on a good year in grades one through eight. And we only had two teachers, grades one through four, and then grades five through eight, and then one secretary. And that was all of the staff and everything. It was a horrific place for me. It was all of these kids that did not did not know anything that was going on to me at home, had no idea the abuse, the mental abuse and the sexual abuse and, and, and everything that I dealt with. And instead, they chose to fixate on the fact that I was adopted and that I was different and nobody wanted me and it was just the every day was hell for me. I did not have a single friend in school until I finally reached, I think, the sixth grade. And the only friends that I had were friends that were people had, who had just transferred to that school. And it was a very religious school, which is great because I learned a lot about that. Well, I learned a lot about ideas and theories and how to think about those or how I felt about those, I should say. I will say that my grandpa, that really great guy, was the deacon of the church, the head deacon of the church that we went to. And he was an all-around handyman. He he was there all the time. So that really great guy was that same guy who then went home and did horrible things to his granddaughter. And as it turns out, nearly every cousin that was in the picture before me no one said a word because they all thought that it stopped with them the first that i know about though was my mom so she had been molested by him she told her uncle her uncle threatened him and it stopped with her she thought so, you know, fast forward to me and she needs a babysitter and hey, let's go trust that that guy. <laughs> I know I, I got a little bit off track, but I just wanted to point out that that had an awful lot of uh, to do with my formulative years. I, I had 
zero friends. And I, I learned that if I were, if I dumbed things down a little bit or acted, you know, uh, did things wrong a little bit here and there that kids actually would like me for that. I finally got a couple of friends, but in my eighth grade class, there were only five students graduating. So, you know, the selection wasn't very big. And we really, it was frowned upon for us to really have friends that were not of our religion. It was a pretty strict religion. Looking back, it really had a lot of very cultish practices. I think in any religion or, you know, any cross-section of the population, unfortunately, these kinds of things can happen. Yes. Um, I want to tell you, I embrace the story that you're telling me. And I want to champion the child inside of you that is so brilliant and so talented and so brave to tell this story. Well, I got to tell you, I didn't realize I was really telling you until I started talking. I was thinking there might be edited versions <laughs> that um, would sound better, but I did not. It just kind of has started going and I feel like I'm probably as I said gone jumped around a little bit trying to stay focused it's okay but I really want to want to make sure that alcohol focus because that is what really was kicking my butt for years and really caused havoc in my life and it was because alcohol was a huge focus for the rest of my life mostly it was I tried to pretend it was not but I look back on so many binges waking up with so many people I didn't know or I did and I went oh my god what did I do or I was the initiator the alcohol gave me the freedom to to act the way that I thought cool people act you know they could do whatever they wanted and then the child in me said, yep, you've been through so much. You can absolutely do whatever you want. And every time I would try to quit drinking, the back of my mind, I consider that addiction to be probably a teenager that lives in the back of my head. And when I deny that alcoholic teenager the alcohol, I start getting popped in the brain. I start getting, you know, maybe all these little reasons why I deserve to drink. And, and up until not terribly long ago, relatively, I've given in every time I've given every excuse I have done. I've done myself no good by trying to be tough and, and anyone who's suffering through the addiction I, or any addiction, I can, I can feel you. I, I 100% get you. So that's where I was, but I'm going to, I'm going to go back a little, a little ways because something really wonderful happened to me in the middle of my chaos, my drinking and my uncontrollable life. I found through Facebook, one of my boyfriends from high school, and we had been together for a couple of years in high school and we kept in touch because we were both in the same band in high school. Um, not the high school band. We had our own group. We played gigs. <laughs> and um, so I was 
home alone after my previous marriage had dissolved and I had had a, a few months to lick my wounds and try to create my new self, which I was very un unsuccessful at. And I reached out to Vince, my, my ex-boyfriend. And, you know, he asked, how are the kids? How's the family? And then I explained how the kids and the family were then, and that I had recently divorced. And his first question was, can I buy you some barbecue? Which was wonderful. He, he lived across the street from a really great barbecue place. So that became kind of our hangout. And it turned out that although we had both grown up in the same town in California, our paths had both led us to this state, to Washington, and only within a couple of hours of each other. And so we connected that weekend. It was the 4th of July weekend. And we have been joined at completely like Velcro at the sides, at the heart ever since. Vince has been with me through the drinking. He's kept me alive more than once. I, a few years ago, I suffered a very large and very dangerous perforation in my belly and uh, almost cost me my life. And I wore a bag on my belly, a colostomy bag for a year and a half, almost to the day, and then had my reversal. So I was so happy. And then I spent the last couple of years after that trying to recover from that. The thing is, trying to recover from that, you think everything's going to be great because you don't have the bag and you are on the road to recovery and you are finally starting to function physically like a grown adult, but then you still haven't fixed your brain. So my brain solution is always to grab some Chardonnay. And if that's not available, whatever's close. I had been struggling and struggling with this through probably the early part of this year. And I realized after reading a line somewhere about it's not, the world's not against you. Life is just lifing. And I don't know why it hit me so hard, but I realized all of these things weren't out to get me specifically. They were not aimed at me to destroy my life or to keep me feeling like I felt when the bullies were after me in, in grade school and, and high school. I realized I did not have to listen to these voices telling me all of things. And I realized I needed to reach out for help. And I was just so sick of being in such a state where I couldn't keep my thoughts straight. I couldn't complete a straight thought. And I had a headache and I was throwing up if I didn't drink. It was just maintenance and self-abuse. And I was determined that that was it. And it really is the life lifing story for me. Nobody's out to get me. And although they did not give me the platform, I really could have used back then I still possess those skills and I am no less I am still an amazing vocalist I am still a musician which is also a vocalist <laughs> and I am still intelligent even though some of my ramblings do not convey that <laughs> so the next thing I did is I reached out and I told myself 
I'm going to be my doctor and I'm going to, I'm going to set up an appointment and I'm going to be honest with her and tell her I need help. And I'm going to be honest about my drinking. And I did. And she gave me a prescription and I told myself as soon as I got that prescription, no more alcohol. And that's what it took for me every day for the first week. I don't have a hangover anymore. I don't have a headache anymore. And I'm starting to feel alive. And then a counselor said a very wonderful thing that made me drop my jaw. And it was because I have I developed after that surgery, I thinking everything was just supposed to be perfect and realizing it wasn't, I just could not see the point. What is the point of doing anything, of living? I wasn't suicidal, but I just saw no point. You're just going to die anyway. And my counselor said, that's all true. That's what happens. But you do know what happens when you eat food, right? It doesn't matter what it is. It all ends up in the same place. And I thought, well, I am... I am remarkably equipped to answer that question. I have a very thorough knowledge of that process, given my colostomy bag experience. And she said to me, but would you deny yourself the privilege of enjoying a food that you enjoy just because of the way that you know it's going to turn out? And that lit lit something in me and I don't know why but it was so simple and it was beautiful and it was exactly what I needed to hear and at that point I decided to reach out to one of my friends who is also adopted and who is very accomplished in her field and is continually growing in her field and she provided me with the name of uh, the Facebook Fireside Adoptees chat group. As soon as I read those words, as soon as I was able to see that there were other people who felt the exact way I felt all the time about my family, my adoptive family, about how I just didn't fit, how I always felt awkward, how I, I just never fit. I realized I wasn't alone and I wasn't crazy. And those feelings don't make me a bad or a worthless person. I'm just, I am what I am. And that is adopted. And now that I've realized that, I am free to grow with my own life. I don't care anymore so much about why they put me up for adoption and then why they decided to get married after I was put up for adoption, which makes no sense. And then <laughs> all of the other things that I've tried to make sense, I just, I don't have to, I just have to validate how they made me feel. And I have to evaluate them each. And I have to decide if I need to keep them or throw them away. And if I want to keep them, are they bringing me any joy? My brain is working overtime to fix this. When I sleep at night, my dreams are almost always in the same or one of each of five 
different locations. It's each night. There is a different scene, but it's the same job. I have this group of people and we're going through the storage facility, wherever this is that we're set at the time. Sometimes it's a giant ship and we're going through and we are sorting and organizing all of the boxes and the items and the files in this. And I am in charge in this. It's my job to direct these people. And I feel that that is my subconscious helping me work through these memories and helping me look at each of them and make that decision. If it does me good, if it brings me joy, it can stay. But other than that, I don't need it anymore. I just needed to know that I wasn't the only one. That's what I needed. And you guys, <laughs> the support, I haven't even really reached out that often, but when I have, I can feel the bond.